0: So hey, Matthew twenty four. We come here to this um, Matthew twenty four and really twenty five together constitute um, actually one sermon that Jesus gave. So we're now we're coming to another section of Matthew, and this is one teaching, Matthew twenty four to twenty five, and it actually has a title. This message, it's it. Scholars call it this: the all of that discourse. Have you ever heard of that? The all of that discourse. Well, this is it, and the reason why it's called the the uh, Olivet Discourse is because Jesus gives this teaching from the Mount Mount of Olives. He's on the top of the Mount of Olives with his disciples. And this is the close of his ministry. We've been seeing this. We've been doing You know, we've been on this long journey through the Gospel of Matthew. And this sermon is the bookend on his ministry, okay? It's like that bookend. And it's interesting because... Actually, if you think about it, Matthew's gospel—the uh, way Matthew lays out his gospel—is this: is that he bookends the ministry of Jesus with two sermons Jesus gave. You remember the first one? It's way back, Matthew chapter five through seven, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus presented the manifesto of his kingdom, and then his ministry began and went on for three years. And now, uh, as we've been seeing, we're at the close of the ministry. And so, as he bookends it, he. He gives another teaching, this one called the, the Olivet Discourse. And so we're going to check it out. This morning what we're going to do is just look at the first 14 verses of Matthew chapter 24. We're going to kind of slow down over the next few weeks and, and go through Matthew 24. But let's, let's just read our text for this morning. Matthew 24 verse 1 says this. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. And he said to them, but he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? Jesus answered them, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to the nations and then the end will come. Jesus and his disciples really have taken just a short trip from the temple up to the Mount of Olives. Um, We've done it several times. Those of us that have been on the Israel trips. It's a short walk, like it's like 25 minutes, maybe 30 minutes, maybe 35 minutes to make that journey from the Temple Mount up to the top of uh, the Mount of Olives. And if we just kind of backtrack for a moment and get our bearings, I mean the close of Matthew chapter 3 is really or chapter 23 is really quite dramatic. It was the last time that Jesus would stand in the temple uh, until he comes again at the end of the age. And there had been this encounter that we've been looking at with the religious leaders. And Jesus had pronounced upon them eight curses, eight woes. Eight, eight curses are woes that stand in contrast to the eight blessings uh, of the Beatitudes. And then Jesus lamented over Jerusalem. Let's check it out again. Uh, chapter 23, verse 37 to 39. His lament over Jerusalem. He said this, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and yet you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus says, I, I would have gathered you as, as children together as a, as a hen, gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. He says, I I would have, but you were not willing. You know, I, I wonder how often that principle is true for my life and for your life. You know, the Bible actually tells us that all of the promises of God are what? Yes and amen. So often God is willing. God is willing and we are not willing. And what a wonderful truth it is to know that that Jesus puts this offer out. My arms are open. You can come into my shelter. You can come like a, a, a chick to the hen. You can come like a into the shelter of his wing and take refuge in me and come under the shade of my protection. And Jesus says something amazing as Matthew chapter 23 closes that we talked about that. The temple that he had called my father's house, my father's house shall be called a house of prayer. The one that he had called my house, my house shall be called a house of prayer. He refers to at the end of chapter 23 as your house. He says, it's yours. It's your house. It was my father's and it was mine. And now it's yours. You can have it. I would have, but you were not willing See, your house is left to you desolate. And he says, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And and it's this stunning drama, really, that's unfolding in the life and ministry of Jesus as he gets up for the last time, and he walks out of the temple, never to return. He got up on his two feet, just a man, and he walked out of that temple, and he pronounced those woes and And as he did, he concluded with a blessing. He said, I will come again. But it won't be until you, you won't see me again until you echo the praise of Palm Sunday and say once again, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord with a greater understanding. And with human sight, I really think that as they watched Jesus walk out of the temple, all they saw with the physical eye was a man walking out of that place. But had they been able to see with the unseen eye or had they been able to see into the realm of God's spirit beyond the physical realm, I think they would have seen what Ezekiel saw in Ezekiel chapter 10. They would have seen the glory of the Lord departing from the house of God. Ezekiel talks about that vision. He says this in Ezekiel 10 verse 18. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings, and they mounted up from before the earth, before my eyes as they went out, with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. That eastern gate, it looks towards the Mount of Olives. It would be the gate that Jesus walked right out. I would have, but you were not willing. And out he walked. Your house is left to you desolate. You know, the nation of Israel, the leaders of Israel would watch the church be born. Acts tells us all about that. They would observe the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, 120 baptized with tongues of fire, speaking unknown languages, declaring the glory of God. They would see and hear the spirit-empowered teaching of Peter and the apostles, the miracles. They would observe thousands coming to faith in Jesus Christ. They would take Stephen and they would make him the first martyr of the church. And because of the persecution that these leaders who had rejected Jesus had put upon the church, the church would just begin to move out from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, Acts Acts tells us about that. And within 40 years of this dramatic encounter of Jesus walking out and Really, I believe the glory of God departing from the house of the Romans would come and they would lay siege to the city. And as Jesus lamented over Jerusalem, I think, I mean, for sure, in his mind's eye with the foreknowledge of being God, he saw the siege that was coming. You know, when you read about the Roman siege of Jerusalem, it's one of the most terrible in in history. After the time of Jesus um, and the, the going out of the, the, the church into all the world, Jerusalem became a city that was increasingly divided by the different factions, the Zealots, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, this group, that group, and the city became violent. There was anarchy happening, and it became more and more a problem for Rome, the Jewish problem maybe you might call it, And so the Roman general Vespian, history tells us he just bided his time. He let them fight it out within the city as all these groups were going at it. Let the factions fight it out and weaken themselves with internal strife. And then Vespian moved his army towards the city of Jerusalem through the hills of Samaria. The last night before they attacked Jerusalem, they they stayed in a valley called the Valley of Thorns about five kilometers from Jerusalem and from the mountaintops that surrounded that valley, they could see the city that they were about to attack. And then he gave the order. The Roman legion marched, made that, that journey. Any resistance while they moved towards the city was quickly squashed. And they surrounded Jerusalem. And there was courage from the Jews, but the Romans just took one section at a time. And they formed their siege wall. And the siege of Jerusalem lasted for three years. Started in AD 67. Went till 70. Famine spread through the city. You know, it was crazy. You can just imagine. People that were suspected of, you know, hoarding food or hiding, concealing food were really no match for people who thought they might have a hidden cache. Natural affections of human relationships vanished as people battled starvation. No one was safe. History says this, it's recorded. They ate their own filth. They ate the offal of the the offering, the intestines of animals. Some people became cannibals and they ate their own children. So it's hard to imagine. But the scripture actually says that. Like in the Old Testament, it's prophesied that that would happen as they turn from God. Vespian siege of Jerusalem was taken over by Titus and Titus was... Even more more fierce, he ramped things up. Frustrated with Jewish resistance, he began crucifying Jewish prisoners all around the perimeter of the city. Sometimes he'd do 500 at a time. They say that he averaged 300 crucifixions a day while he lay siege to the city. So many people were being crucified that they say the Romans actually ran out of wood because there was no wood left to crucify people on. Inside the city, some things, things just got worse. They believed the high priest was like corresponding with the Romans. And so some people got a hold of him. They killed his three sons before him, before they took his, his life. And finally, the Romans took that tower, the, uh, the fortress of Antonio. It was a tower on the north side of the Temple Mount that overlooked the temple. And they got access to the Temple Mount, and there was carnage, and there was fire, and Lots of stuff happening on the Temple Mount. And Titus, we know this, wanted to preserve uh, the temple. It, it had just just finished a renovation. Ooh, power might go out here. Just finished a renovation that Herod had started. It, the renovation had been going all through the life of Jesus. It took 46 years to renovate the temple. It was one of the wonders of the world. And so Titus wanted the temple preserved, but in the heat of the battle, we know this. History tells us this. Josephus records this. One of the soldiers threw a torch, and it went into the temple, and the temple caught on fire, and it went up in flames. And by the time the siege was over, uh, those who were slain or those who had died of famine uh, are accounted at 1.3 million. They say there was only 97,000 people left and they were taken captive by the Romans. See, Jesus said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. I mean, Jesus foresaw all the horror of what would happen, and he lamented with those words. When when we read in the other Gospels that he wept, he wept over the city. By uh, the year 135, 135 A.D., the Romans would once again come to Israel, and they would squash a small rebellion, and they were so fed up, man. They were so fed up with Jewish resistance and all the problems that Israel had caused them, that they made the country of Israel out of bounds for the Jew. They renamed it. After one of their old foes, we know, the, the Philistines, they renamed the land of Israel Palestine. The Romans did that. They changed the name of Jerusalem to Elia Capitolina. And no Jew was allowed in Israel. And so as Jesus walked out of the temple, he says, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We're coming to a text here where it's, it's a prophetic text. And for 1,900 years, we know the history. There was no Jewish nation from the time that, that Rome banished them from the land until 1948. And then the word of God was fulfilled. Prophecy was fulfilled. A nation was born in a day. We're still waiting for Jesus to come. Still anticipating his coming. Anticipating the day when the people of Israel will say with greater understanding, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they welcome Jesus as their Messiah. I mean, we can see the world right now. They're not ready to say that. The time hasn't yet come, but it's getting closer, isn't it? It's getting closer. And so in Matthew's gospel... Here's the thing. Is Jesus' ministry is, is getting the bookend, the, the, the ministry here is over. All that really remains is what? The cross. That's all that's left to do, man, the, the work of the cross. And, but before that, Jesus is going to give this sermon, Matthew 24 and 25, the Olivet Discourse, and it's a prophetic teaching. It gives us insight into the time of the Gentiles, the church age, this, this time between the cross and the birth of the church until Jesus' second coming, and uh, these are—I would say this—these are a couple of really important chapters in our Bible. Important in terms of understanding the days in which we live. Important in terms of understanding the last days and end times. And so, like I mentioned, you know, the ministry of Jesus is bookended with these two sermons. It's interesting—the Sermon on the Mount and the Olivet Discourse. Sermon on the Mount's really practical all of that discourse is really prophetical. You know, the Sermon on the Mount was followed by Jesus' baptism. This sermon's gonna be followed by Jesus' burial. So as we, we start to make our way through Matthew 24 and 25, it's, it's divided into two parts. Matthew chapter 24 is, is end time prophecy and Matthew 25 is end time parables. Jesus is gonna just share stories. And, and so both the prophecies and the parables are concerned with the last days. They, they, they have meaning to you and I. Like, uh, this is uh, a gospel that's written to the Jew. We've, we've seen that throughout, but this is about the church. It's about the Gentiles. It's about the Jews and the nation of Israel, all kind of wrapped up in one here. You know, when we talk about the last days, here's the thing about the last days. By biblical definition, do you know when they started They started at the ascension of Jesus. And so for 2,000 years, we've been living in the last days. Boy, they seem to just go on and on, don't they? Now, here's the thing about prophecy. Why would Jesus share these things? Well, what we need to remember is this, is that prophecy is not meant to scare, but to prepare not to scare but to prepare. This isn't about freaking you out. This isn't about us being filled with fear. Jesus doesn't want your heart filled with terror or worry. No, what Jesus wants is that you would be prepared in the time in which we live. Ready, like you know, a student prepares for study, prepares for an exam by studying, you know, a cook pulls out the ingredients so he can make the meal. The athlete trains to be ready for the day of competition. You you prepare and the desire is to to get the marks and to be in the kitchen and to get in the game. You know, the Bible tells us about John the Baptist that he was filled with the spirit and with the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient of the wisdom uh, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Prophecy, biblical prophecy is about being prepared. And so, you know, as we begin to dive into this over the next few weeks, I just want to, I'm going to be reminding you that Jesus doesn't want us scared. He wants you prepared. He wants you ready. And for that reason, you know, Bible prophecy is exciting, you know? Sometimes people don't know what to do with it. It's exciting. It's exciting to see the things that are foretold in the scripture, and it's about being ready. And so let's check it out again here. Matthew chapter 24, verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away. And when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, but he answered them, you see all these things, do you not? I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now the reason really for the long introduction this morning, that was a long introduction. Uh, Somebody said to me, hey, it's Super Bowl Sunday. Don't go long. And I said, oh, really? What time does the game start? And they said, 3 o'clock. And I said, don't worry. I'll have you out by (laughs) 2.30. No, the reason for the long introduction was to get the context of the disciples' question. The disciples' question has to be understood in the light of what just unfolded in front of us in in the previous events. And Jesus said, you know, I'm leaving and I'm not coming back until the nation is ready to receive me. You wonder, when's Jesus coming back? Well, one thing we need to watch for is the nation of Israel ready to receive him. And in light of the confrontation in the temple, I, I'm not sure why the disciples were kind of pointing out the beauty of it as they were, they were leaving. You know, maybe they were trying to, you know, say, Jesus, I think they're still good there, Jesus. Are you sure you don't want to go back? And, you know, Look at that building, Jesus. You know, As you read about it in history, like, Herod had hung gold shields and stuff all on the exterior of the building. They say that when the sun come up, would come up in the morning that the light would hit the temple and it would be like, Boo, the city It's like turning on lights in the city. Not just from the sun, but the, the blinding light that would come off the temple as the sun shone on it. But Jesus wasn't impressed. Questioned. He, he had wept over the city. He said, I, I, I've held out my hands to Stubborn and obstinate people," he said. "You see all these things, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. The temples really, the Temple Mount's an amazing place to go visit. Some of the stones that are there that are that are cast down, they're, they're forty feet long, twenty feet high, twenty feet wide. It's unreal. There's 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 no stones like it on the earth. Nothing in the the pyramids compares to the stones that are at the temple mound. As the Romans were se- laying siege to the city, when that torch was thrown into the temple and the temple was burnt up, one of the things that happened was this, is that all of the gold leaf that was inside the temple and the gold that was on the exterior of the temple began to melt. And it ran down and it went through all of the cracks of the stones and and, and the rock and all of these things. And and so Titus said this, literally, we have to pull the whole thing apart so we can get the gold out. And so he ordered the dismantling of the temple stone by stone until all of the gold was recovered. One of the things that some historians say is this, is that because it's limestone and there was large pools of water up on the temple mount, that they, they actually believe that... that um, Titus instructed to cover over those pools of water and build heaping fires on upon them. And then you know what happens. Water and limestone, the, the stones begin to crack. And they say that literally he probably exploded much of the temple mount using old, old techniques and skills. And so they pulled it apart stone by stone, thus fulfilling the words of Jesus. There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And so you can imagine the disciples looking out over this building that's one of the wonders of the world and they were stunned at Jesus' word. And so we read in verse 3 that as he sat down on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? Really two questions wrapped maybe into one. Maybe they didn't realize they were asking two questions, but here they are. When will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? Now, Jesus isn't going to tell them when. We know what the scripture says. No one knows the day or the hour except the Father. So He's not going to tell them when, but he's going to point out to them seasons and signs and things that they should be watching for. And he starts by sharing some end time problems. Now, here's the thing. As we launch into Matthew 24 and 25, I'm going to tell you this. This is not a chronological teaching from Jesus. It's topical. He's talking about end time stuff. So he moves from here to here to here. He doesn't lay it out for us chronologically. And so there's mystery involved. There's figuring it out. We've got to look at these things through different parts of the scripture. But people generally say that verses 4 through 8 describe the general condition of the earth from the time of Jesus' ascension into heaven until the tribulation. And then verses 9 through 14 begin to describe some of the second half of the tribulation and different things that are going to happen before Jesus returns, different signs that are happening on the earth. And so Jesus starts by sharing three three characteristics of of those days. And they're this. Deception, destruction, and disaster. Sounds fun, eh? End time problems. Let's check it out. Verse 4 again. Uh, Jesus says of these end time deceptions, destructions, disasters, he says they're the beginning of birth pains. You know, birth pains, you know what they're like, right? No, I don't know what they're like. The ladies know what they're like. Intense, they never subside, you know? Or they, they come on intense and then they subside and you get a break and then they come on again and I've never had them, but I've watched my wife go through them three times. I tried to talk her into fourth. She wouldn't have any of it. Uh, You know, one thing that many Bible teachers say is this, is that birth pains increase with frequency and intensity as a birth draws nearer. Well, we know that if you've gone through it, right? And so it's suggested that, that that may be the case in terms of deception and destruction and disaster, that they will increase with frequency and intensity as the time of Christ draw, uh, Christ's coming draws near. You know, birth pains are a natural part of the cycle when a child is going to be born. You, you have to have it. It's just how it works. It's how God's designed it. And, and the best part is the end when the baby comes, right? Then the baby's there and it's like, it's all forgotten. At least I don't remember any of it. <laughs> no, I just, you know, I, yeah, I don't remember. Actually, it's true. I don't remember any of the pain of our children being born. <laughs> Somebody just said careful. <laughs> I know I'm treading. But, you know, I was, I was thinking, you know, oh, that wasn't that bad. Come on, honey, let's have another one. <laughs> then you hear ladies tell their birth stories, right? And you think, wow, that really was bad. So I'm going to shut up while I'm ahead here. Now, you, you think... You think of the world and the image of the world in travail like a woman having pain, birth pains. That's the picture Jesus paints for us. And until the king comes, there's going to be birth pains. Jesus doesn't actually tell us. You know, I think one of the mistakes that we could we could assume that they're going to be more intense and increase in frequency, he doesn't say that, but it kind of, it makes sense. I mean, we're we're kind of, all expecting that. And until the king comes, the intense and frequent contractions take place in in this idea, Jesus said. Disaster, uh, destruction, deception. You think about what the Bible tells us. It tells us that scripture is groaning, or sorry, that, that creation is groaning and it's longing for the sons of God to be revealed. You've read that in your Bible. You know, I think this, next time you... Hopefully we don't experience, but we maybe hear about an earthquake. Remind yourself, that was like a contraction. That was a contraction. Jesus is coming. The king is coming. And so some say these these birth pains increase in frequency and intensity as the day approaches. And to me, it, it seems to make sense. And so Jesus warns about deceptions. He says this, many will come in my name. They'll say, I'm the Christ. They'll lead many astray. I mean, we live in a day when there are so many opportunities to be led away into deception. Isn't it true? There's just opportunity after opportunity to be led into deception. Maybe they don't say, I'm the Christ, but they say, I'm the way, or we've got it. We've got the answer. You know, I think about cults or various religions that are clearly in opposition to Jesus, there's those, but then there's more sinister things like actual buildings that call themselves a church and yet they are not faithful to the gospel whatsoever. There's plenty of that right here in our own community. Churches that are apostate, they call themselves a church, but they don't preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are many movements that are just tweaking the message, you know, bringing people into the bondage of legalism or exercising unhealthy control or bringing new age philosophy and different things and creating this syncretistic message with the gospel, working deception. Maybe with just a little tweak to the gospel. And so in the last days, we have to be on our guard. Growing in the knowledge and the truth of Jesus Christ, I would say getting the word of God into our hearts, knowing that that Jesus is reality, that no matter what we see going on in the world, he said that he's truth. You know, I've been just stewing on this so much lately as we just look around the world. We say, where's truth, man? Can't trust news anymore. Can't trust politicians. Can't trust this. Don't know who's telling the truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's one truth you can always trust, Jesus Christ. And so we have to be on our guard. Jesus said there will be destructions. He said, you will hear of of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Jesus says this, but the end is not yet as you see these things. That word translated end is in the Greek telos, it means the very end. The very end is not yet, even though you see these things. You know, up until uh, World War I, really, when you look at the history of the world, most, most battles, wars were uh, against army against army. Then when the world wars began, we began to see more nation against nation. And there is this sense here as we read the words of Jesus that it's, it's going to continue. It's going to escalate. It's going to uh, keep going on until it all culminates in the battle of Armageddon and Jesus comes again. And I think we're, we're pretty removed from, in a lot of ways, at least my generation is, and I'm not that young anymore, pretty removed from the, sec- the second of two world wars, Right? We look around the world today and we know there's war. There's lots of scenarios going on, though, that we might not define as war. We might not say that's war. You know, so statistically, can we say there's more wars happening? Well, I don't know necessarily, but the truth is this that there's definitely more use of force in the world. A lot more use of force. Military force and its uses up in the world. There, there are many skirmishes that we might not call war, but they're happening. You know, there are some, some actually, really, some really biblically significant skirmishes or wars happening right now that are going on right now. Let's consider Syria for a minute. I'm going to get you to turn your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 17. And specifically, I want to talk about Damascus for a minute. Did you know that Damascus is a 5,000-year-old city? I don't know if you know this about Damascus, but Damascus is uh, the oldest continually inhabited city on the earth that's never been destroyed. Never been destroyed. In all the history of the world, you can look up Damascus. It's never been Wiped out. But the crazy thing is, is that Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah chapter 17 that Damascus would become a heap of ruins. Look at verse 1. An oracle concerning Damascus. Behold, Damascus will cease to be a city and it will become a heap of ruins. That is an unfulfilled prophecy until the day in which we live. You You can go home today and just Google Damascus. Pictures before and after. And I don't think it's done over there yet. You know, there's a lot of other speculations that that city is going to become a a lot more of a heap of ruins than it is. And and this is a biblical prophecy that has never been fulfilled since the days of Isaiah. And it's happening in our day, right now, today. Isis. Isis. I mean, we talk about ISIS for a minute. You know, they've caused so much trouble in the Middle East. You know that the Israelis say that they can have ISIS like wiped off the map within two, three days? That they can wipe them out. But the crazy thing is this, is that ISIS is serving the purposes of other nations, serving their agenda. So they don't want to wipe them out. You know, it's helping Russia come down into Syria. It's helping Turkey move into Syria. Helping Iraq move into Syria. And for the first time, get this, for the first time in the history of the world, all of the nations that are listed in Ezekiel 38, the Battle of Gog and Magog, are present in Syria today. Today. You know, the only nation that's not listed in, in Ezekiel 38 is the nation, Syria itself. Well, and we can look at the, you know, I, I was just thinking about this a, with fresh eyes a little bit today, just thinking, wow, God's just moving the Syrians out of there. Just all over the face of the earth. We have to believe that God's in control. We think, oh, there's some master plan of Islam. God turns everything to good, man, for his name and for his glory. He's removing and just preparing the battle scenes. And Ezekiel 38 prophesies that those nations are going to attack who? Israel. And God is going to come. He's going to come. He's going to send the angel of the Lord. He's going to wipe out those armies to the point that it's going to be so miraculous. There'll be so much destruction that the Bible prophesies Israel will essentially fuel their nation for seven years on the equipment that is left behind. And the things that are left behind. I mean, we have never been closer to the return of Christ than we are right now today. And I mean, that's kind of like an obvious statement, right? Like it's like, but it's true. But it's true right now. You know, we look at uh, the UN and the resolutions and moves they've made even in the last just number of weeks. UN Resolution 2234 from the Security Council, ratified by... Uh, well, ratified by the Security Council just a few weeks back, and then it led to the gathering of more than 70 nations in France to discuss the dividing up of the land of Israel. Two-state solution. It points us right to the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 12. Calvin, I'll get you to flash that one up on the screen for us there. I don't have it in my notes, so we'll read it. It says this: On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples, and all who lift it will surely hurt themselves. And all the nations of the earth will gather against it. This is a couple of weeks ago. 70, I told you about it on that Sunday. I think it was three Sundays ago. Seventy nations gathered to discuss the dividing up of this land. The UN Security Council has said that that. The Israelis have to abide by the 67 borders, which means this, Wailing Wall's gone, most of Jerusalem's gone, Golan Heights. It's like, chop that nation up in half and the Israelis are having none of it as we see in the news. They, they did all sorts of actions in response. Check out First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1 through 3. It's coming up on the screen and security. I actually found this video clip on YouTube and it was, it was, I tried to download it. I couldn't get it to work. So I want to play for you guys. But it was world leaders using the terms peace and security. And it was incredible. UN speeches, presidents, prime ministers, this part, and just using these specific words. A time of peace and security. And we're going to have peace and security. And these are, these are buzzwords the Bible tells us that tell us That Jesus' return is drawing nigh. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Jesus also points to disasters as a sign of the end. Check it out in there, too. Back in Matthew, he says there will be famines and there will be earthquakes in various places. These are just part of the labor pains. You know, war and famine, they kind of typically go hand in hand. We, we know this. The earth is having a population explosion. I think it was up till about 1850. The earth was under a population of 1 billion. We're now at the point in time where we're adding a billion people every 20 years. It's incredible. Just the multiplication. Famine and disasters are just seem like they're becoming more and more common. I don't know if it's like we're seeing the news more and we're just getting more information or if they're actually on the increase. It's like you try and look up the stats and one person says this and one person says that. It's hard to know, but it feels like it, doesn't it? That there's more and more stuff going on all the time. Increase of all sorts of things, Ebola, HIV, Zika, cancer. So many things. Famine and disasters just becoming so common. Uh, earthquakes, Jesus says. If you look up the stats on earthquakes, they're actually suggesting that statistically earthquakes are on the decline, which I was so surprised as I was, I was studying this. So, I, you know, that's where I'm like, you wonder about some of these things. But we know the area. We can't predict an earthquake, but we, we know how to measure them after the fact. We know the areas that are prone to earthquakes. It's amazing what they've been telling us here in the lower mainland, right, for so many years. Big one's coming, big one's coming, big one's coming. It's just a matter of time. Just like a pregnant woman, sooner or later the birth pains come. It's interesting when you look at maps of fault lines, just how many major cities, especially even in North America, are built on fault lines. That if there was to be a big one, man, the destruction. End time destruction, disaster, and deception. But Jesus also begins to go on further, and this seems to point to the time of the tribulation. And the tribulation that's coming, look at verse 9. He talks about end time persecutions. He says, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. It says, man, there is going to be terror for those who follow me. Isn't this encouraging this morning? <laughs> it's about being prepared. Remember that. I want to I remind you that. This isn't to make us scared. It's to open our eyes to say Jesus is coming to light the flame in the heart of the church. You know, Christians have always been hated by the world. But Jesus prophesies there's going to be an acceleration of that. He's speaking here to these men who are both Christians and they're Jews. There's going to be an acceleration of persecution upon the Jewish people. And Jesus says all nations will be involved. All the nations. Sometimes I just think, wow, we're so blessed here. Look at one day Canada is going to turn on you and me. It's just how it is. We have to be prepared for these things, and so I think that you know, as we read this, uh, this increases for the Christian until what? Jesus comes for his church. He comes for his church. We, we, we. It, it, like I said, it's hard. It's hard to get the chronological picture, even just. From this, but what we believe is this: is that before the great tribulation comes, that Jesus is going to come, and He's going to remove His church from the earth, and He's going to focus His salvation program once again on the nation of Israel during a seven-year tribulation. And the tribulation time will be a time of great persecution for those who are righteous. The nations are going to vent their anger and their hostility on Israel. Jesus says, there'll be treachery. Many will fall away. They'll betray one another. They'll hate one another. Terrible betrayals. Even those who were once true to one another, you know, a man who held his wife at night, they'll they'll turn on one another. Jesus says, there'll be many end time uh, false prophets. False prophets will arise and lead many astray. They'll come on the scene, the They'll, they'll, they'll preach a gospel message to an attempt to deceive the whole world. They're going to they're point people to a false messiah the gospel tells us about. That Israel will put their hope in a false messiah before they realize that deception. We're going to see this more throughout this, this chapter in weeks to come. Verse 12 says this, And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. You know, as we look at God's program, as end time program, when, when he removes the church from the face of the earth and the rapture happens and you and I are gone, the Bible says sin is going to run rampant. You know, I often think about the church, it's like we're salt, we're light, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. What happens when you remove salt and light and that which is the temple of the Holy Spirit from the human race? God uses us to hold up truth, to restrain evil. His Spirit is doing that work through the church. And sin will run rampant in those days. That's part of the reason for the tribulation. Sin will be exposed. The human heart without God will be exposed for all the evil that's within it. There'll be worldwide chaos. Revelation chapter 7, we looked at Revelation chapter 14 a number of weeks back, but Revelation chapter 7 tells us about the 144,000 messengers that God is going to anoint, and he is going to choose them to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth, and they are going to finish the job that the church began. And I say that because this this last verse, verse 14, doesn't teach that the gospel of God's grace must spread to every nation before Jesus can return for his church. No, it's, the Lord's return at the end of the age here. Remember, I pointed out that that verse, sorry, I flipped in my Bible here. I gotta go back. I pointed out that that word end, telos, which means the very end. Well, it's also in verse 14. And the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end, meaning the final end, will come. And it's the Lord's return at the end of the age that's in view there. That job is, the job of preaching the gospel is going to be fulfilled by those 144,000. Know, often you hear people say, well, once the gospel's proclaimed out to the ends of the earth, then God will come and He'll." I don't believe that's the case. Jesus can come anytime, anytime. And so the challenge is, is that <coughs> we endure to the end. And Jesus said, the end will come, the, the very end. And, and so, this morning, they are going to just leave us hanging right there. Sheesh, come on, eh? And I, I want to just give you this simple application this morning, really simple. Prepared, not scared. Prepared, not scared. And you know, the question you might ask was, well, then how do I be prepared? How am I prepared during this time? And the question's really obvious, isn't it? I mean, the first question is this. Do you know Jesus? <laughs> is Jesus your Lord and Savior? I mean, if Jesus isn't your Lord and Savior, then all of these things that we see in the Scripture should be a source of making you terrified. But if Jesus is your Lord and Savior, then, you know, the promises of Scripture to us are yes and amen. Amen. 365 times, one for every day of the year, the Lord commands, do not be afraid for I'm with you. Do not be afraid. And so how can you be prepared? Look, the first thing is this. If you don't know Jesus, you need to surrender your life to his rule and to his lordship because he wants to save you from yourself, save you from sin. He's holding out his arms to you. Will you come to him? For those of you who know Jesus, how can you be prepared? I say this, man, we don't want our love for Christ to grow cold in these days. We don't want our love for Christ to grow cold in these days. We've got to stoke the flame of our relationship with Jesus. Being a part of the church, diving deep into our own personal quiet times, you know, coming and joining with us at times of prayer, asking God for the refreshing of His Spirit, Try to be bold in sharing the gospel. I mean, stoke the flame of your faith with Jesus. And so this morning, uh, I just want to leave you with that. I just want to leave you with that. Prepared, not scared.